0: Welcome to UBP's Investment Outlook 2024. This series of six episodes will explore UBP's key convictions for the upcoming year. We will be covering topics such as the economic environment, our main plays, as well as a specific risk. I'm your host, Robert Wibberley, from UBP's Group Communications. This episode looks at China and beyond and covers the deceleration of the China economy whether China is entering its own last decade and how investors can better position themselves. For this podcast, I am joined by Carlos Casanova, our senior economist focused on Asia. Morning, Carlos. Great to have you here today. Good morning, Robert. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So in my mind, when I think of China over the last decades, I think of rapid economic growth. Is this fair? How has China's economy changed over the years? Well, I uh, can share some
1: personal anecdotes um, of how China has changed over the years. My first trip to the mainland, to Beijing, was in 1998. And at the time, you know, taxis were quite limited and the preferred method of transportation for all of us was um, carts that were pulled by donkeys um, and they used to sell watermelons. heavens. This was 1998. At that time, China's per capita GDP was about 830 U.S. dollars, or about double that of India's. Um, and during the span of 20 plus years, since 1998, that number soared uh, almost 15-fold to 12,500 U.S. dollars, um, which, by the way, is approximately five times larger than India's level currently. So I think that although global investment, uh, investor sentiment has been a little bit weak over the past few years, We mustn't negate the fact that China's transformation has been quite outstanding Um, and we have very, very apparent visual reminders of that from, you know, the network of high-speed rail to enormous skyscrapers um, and flagship buildings in all of its tier one cities. There is no arguing with the fact that the Chinese economic development is a miracle of sorts and many countries around the world continue to look at China um, as a model of development. Um, China's model is, of course, build it and the economy will follow, which is not something that all the countries around the world can achieve. And that was further balanced by this policy of crossing the river by peeling the stone, which um, was then flagship initiative to try to navigate some of the uncertainties. And we are seeing some signs that things are changing.
0: Um, but uh, overall, it is something that has worked for China in the past. Carlos, um, let me stop you there for a second our audiences might not fully understand the concept of build it and the economy will follow. At least not in the Chinese sense. Could you elaborate on that and perhaps share some thoughts on whether this is sustainable?
1: Yes, the build it and the economy will follow refers to China's uh, investment-led growth model. Um, This is a situation that is quite unique to China. Some other EMs in Asia um, have tried to emulate this story albeit with some difficulties. A great example of this is Vietnam, which is often uh, referred to as Little China. But the degree of control that the Chinese government has over policy levers is something that is di- just very difficult for other Asian economies to replicate. The model is running into some difficulties as of late, um, and there are a few reasons for that. So to your point on whether it's sustainable or not, I think we are starting to see signs that it, you know, it's not sustainable forever. First of all, low-hanging fruit have already been picked, leaving less room for um, policy experimentation, which was a key component, of course, of that uh, opening and reform process that was led by Deng Xiaoping, and that really sort of propelled China into the economic powerhouse that it is today. And more critically, um, there is less space for policy error, given um, that China is at a more advanced stage in its development right now. I would argue that there is uh, a social uh, reason why the policy is is not as sustainable as it was before, and that is that the social consensus that each generation will be better off than the previous one has shifted, leaving many of the country's youth uh, a little disillusioned with their economic prospects. And that, of course, is one of the reasons explaining this recent trend of uh, tanping or or lying flat, which is something that the central government is still grappling with uh, today. Um, lastly, I, w- I would like to say that um, something really ha- changed in 2012, and that explains sort of the situation that we are in right now. China went from growing 15% on average uh, the decade after it ascended to the WTO in the 2000, to gradually sort of slowing towards the current potential growth rate of 4.5 to 5% that we see today. Of course, our forecast for 2023 is a little bit higher than that at 5.2%, but we are expecting the economy to decelerate to that potential rate of 4.5% next year.
0: So has China's economy decelerated, would you say, on a structural basis here?
1: Yes. So there's been a lot of talk recently by analysts about uh, this deceleration being due to, you know, a lack of uh, government support like we saw in the U.S. with consumption vouchers or in Europe with uh, increased uh, central bank financing. But I would argue that that is only one of the reasons. Um, So it's true, but to some extent, um, as I mentioned before, this deceleration, in fact, started much earlier in 2012. Um, 2012 is an important hallmark, as it's the year that uh, President Xi Jinping ascended to power. Um, But more importantly, I would say that uh, 2012 is the year of China's 12th five-year plan, uh, which covers, uh, you know, started in 2011, but 2012 is really the first year um, that they executed that. And the 12th five-year plan um, should be in every investor's mind, in my opinion, because it is the uh, blueprint for China's uh, rebalancing. It uh, promotes consumption over investment and exports. It promotes um, measures to close the income gap through, you know, increase in wages, um, but also increase social safety nets across the provinces. And it also lists a range of energy efficiency targets, which of course uh, refers to this need to... Uh, rebalance its industrial base. So I would say that uh, you know it is a structural slowdown that is both planned and also has been in the making um, for quite a number of years already. Another explanation for the slowdown is that due to this need to rebalance its economy, China has entered uh, somewhat of a post-bubble uh, restructuring period, much like what we saw in Japan, Asia, and the and the US following
0: um, you know their uh, bubble and bust cycles. Um- But what lessons can be learned from other examples of post-bubble restructuring efforts around the world? For example, um, the U.S. or Japan? Yes, so
1: of course in China, we have a big issue. Um, With that rapid development came uh, fast growth rates and asset bubbles, and in particular, um, there was a big real estate uh, bubble that is just going to take a significant uh, number of years to restructure. So yes, we are in a post-bubble restructuring phase, And there are plenty of examples of that around. And these are things that China will consider when it puts forward um, a mix of policies aimed at addressing those measures. If we sort of go in chronological order, we mentioned a few of those in our outlook, but if we go in chronological order, starting with Japan, of course, perhaps the poster child of uh, post-bubble restructuring gone wrong, um, we saw no political change uh, with very little policy support, no devaluation of the currency at the time, And of course, that was designed for a reason. It was in order to minimize the social cost of this restructuring. That was great in terms of the unemployment rates, it didn't really move, and Japan never had to grapple with issues around high inflation, but the consequence was a multi-decade slump um, that is now uh, referred to as the the lost decades of Japan. In other parts of Asia, we had the uh, East Asian financial crisis of 1997, Again, there was no policy support, but we saw a number of economies in the region devaluate the currencies aggressively, um, and that resulted in social costs. So we saw increases in inflation and unemployment and political change in many cases, which is very important in this case, because that is something that China wants to avert at all costs. The U.S. uh, post-2008 was a little bit different. We saw massive support, uh, both in terms of monetary and fiscal. We saw devaluation of the currency which is something that China is trying to avoid, but we can get into that later. But in the U.S., the social cost of these measures was mitigated by the rise of the tech industry. So there were alternative industries that were able to pick up the slack from some of the sectors that were not doing well. And this is critical because China is trying to replicate this part of the U.S.'s post-bubble restructuring in its own economy by promoting um, some of the, the core industries that we can get into more details later. But this is something that China is looking to replicate. The other example that China has and sort of look forward to is Europe. Europe, uh, post-EU sovereign debt crisis in 2016, adopted a more moderate approach. So, you know, not as passive as Japan was, but not as as aggressive as the U.S. Uh, The result was that we, you know, had a protracted period of underperformance in some um, European economies, specifically in the periphery. We, We did have policy support, but it wasn't as aggressive as in the U.S. And of course, the impact on, in terms of social costs was a little bit more moderate. Um, so China could also look at the example of Europe, um, accept um, that they could face an interim period of, of economic underperformance, but on the plus side, they would be experiencing only moderate um, costs on the social front. Uh, and they would be in a position then to do much
0: less aggressive easing than the US had to do post-2008. So do you think that China could suffer its own lost decades Yes, so uh,
1: it's a possibility. It is a topic that has inevitably been at the fore of the discussion around China this year. The architect of this notion of uh, uh, you know, a balance sheet recession, um, an economist at the Nomura Research Institute in fact came out earlier this year saying that he was an advocate of the idea that China was in fact entering a balance sheet recession that could trigger a, a, a lost decade with Chinese characteristics. Um, but in our opinion, Although it remains a possibility, we are not really at that stage yet. Um, there are some reasons for that. Um, so contrary to Japan, a lot of the debt in China is with corporates and state-owned enterprises, whereas in Japan, a lot of the debt was with households. So the, the, the households in China remain net creditors. Moreover, China still has the ability to tap into specific balance sheets in order to spur aggregate demand, which is something that Japan was also not able to do. So not only is uh, the housing sector quite healthy, but also a lot of the uh, issues around government debt are concentrated with the provinces. The central government balance sheet remains untapped effectively. So we, the PBOC is not in the same position as the Fed is right now. Its balance sheet is not as extended than it could do quantitative easing um, in order to try to support the economy that way. Interestingly, however, and um, Japan was at a more advanced stage of development with higher per capita GDP levels than China is right now. So if China were to enter a lost decade of sorts during this period of development, I think the consequences for the global economy would be bigger because we would be losing out on decades of very
0: strong um, GDP growth in China still. Okay, but, uh, but what, what is hindering China's ability to uh, deliver stimulus or implement those lessons to avoid falling into its own lost decade? As, as we mentioned, this the reference of the US economy. They were able to basically bounce
1: back from the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. And if China could, it possibly would use the same tools that the US did. But the situation is a little bit different. Um, China has a closed capital account. With that comes, uh, you know, restrictions with capital flowing in and out of the country, and if they do large uh, amounts of policy stimulus, that would fuel a larger differential with the U.S., and it would put a lot of pressure on their financials, on their foreign exchange system. Um, as you would then see domestic agents trying to move that capital overseas, and that could be potentially destabilizing um, from a policy point of view. I think also this need. To shift to a consumption led growth model, you know, they are following the U.S. in the sense that they are boosting the development of some core technologies and, and hoping that uh, those sectors are going to pick up the slack. But ultimately, they still need to rebalance toward a more sustainable consumption led growth model. And that comes with some social changes. Um, you will not have an increase in consumption if you don't have an increase in individualism and other trends that big consumer markets like the U.S. are, are well known for and again that is something that the government is is still getting wrapping its head around and i think it, it might take a little bit more time before they find a right balance that works for them um you know so consumerism but with chinese characteristics um, and so we we're not quite there yet so i think that is also one of the factors that's hindering china from doing more um, to avoid falling into into its own lost decade
0: i think, thanks carlos um throughout our outlook we talk about a new geopolitical and economic order um so- do you think geopolitical factors play a role?
1: Uh, absolutely. I think we have discussed the structural story um, and some of the case studies. But what none of these economies had to grapple with in the past is a deteriorating geopolitical landscape. So, well, although we we do not think that this is the main driver, of course, of China's deceleration, um, it is something that is going to weigh on on potential growth in the future, and it also, to some extent, restricts China's options. Um, when it comes to bouncing out of this post-restructuring phase. You know, you are seeing um, some concerted efforts by the U.S. and its allies to try to um, restrict exports uh, of certain types of Chinese technology. And they're also making it harder for Chinese companies to invest in overseas technology. So that inevitably will mean that, um, for example, Korea post-bubble, they were very uh, successful at positioning benefit from some of the new technology trends that are now leaders in in the exports of certain types of technologies, like semiconductors and smartphones, for example, um, China will find it much more difficult to utilize that card when it comes to its own exports. Of course, China has a a huge domestic market, so that's going to help, but it's just uh, going to face a few more obstacles than some of the other case studies that we discussed in
0: in our outlook had to face uh, during their own restructuring phases. So when you combine these, um, this restructuring phase with these geopolitical factors, um, what does this actually mean for potential growth and what the government's going to prioritize?
1: So that is exactly um, why we have revised down our potential growth rate. So we we have a a view that is slightly below consensus. Uh, We do think that China will try to hit its goal of becoming a middle-income economy by 2035. And our calculations show that that requires a minimum growth rate of between four to 4.5% between now and 2035. Um, so that is the floor. China is not going to go back to the sort of 2000 double growth uh, rate era. Uh, China just has to grow, uh, around that potential rate of four to 4.5% in order to hit that target. Um, and so we, we do think that, um, in terms of growth, we are looking at a slower growth, but hopefully. You know, after a few years, once we have more visibility regarding those new industries and, and consumption with Chinese characteristics, it should be growth of a higher quality. And in terms of the government priorities, well, as I mentioned, um, you know they are trying to manage this transition toward consumption while simultaneously uh, boosting some key sectors. It seems to me that the leaders uh, in Beijing have pivoted back to a 1960s mentality where um, they are prioritizing industry over consumerism. So we are seeing um, more funds being deployed in the development of domestic uh, uh, domestic industries, specifically the ones that they've highlighted as being uh, targets for this year. And they are, of course, hoping to see an increase in consumption, but it's going to be the sort of consumption that um, favors uh, these domestic champions over perhaps the WTO era where you had big um, foreign conglomerates that that were capturing more of that market share.
0: Okay, okay, that's clear to me. Um, But then with this, as an investor, how is it best to position myself in this era? So for investors, I think the lessons from other post-bobal economies globally
1: are quite useful and suggest that passive investment in Chinese equity should be avoided. Um, I think in general, the Chinese equity market tends to be policy driven as opposed to being driven by um, the business cycle, like in the U.S. So it, it is always a good idea to be more targeted in China. Tactical investors um, that have a focus on the global business cycle can look at options outside of China within emerging markets. Um, I think we we do have a few examples there for investors that are keen on capitalizing on on that. But for investors that are more China-focused or have a need to maintain exposure in China, we think they should concentrate on longer that rather than shorter time horizons and focus on sectors uh, within the new economy that still benefit from policy tailwinds and that should drive China's next phase of development. So we we specifically think that um, you know sectors uh, like electric vehicles are interesting. Remember that um, you know China went from effectively copying some of the foreign, uh, vehicles and exporting parts and components to becoming the world's largest market for EVs, um, setting 6.8 million EVs in 2022, um, and also surprisingly overtaking Japan as the world's largest exporter of vehicles, um, already in the first half of this year. So I think that is a story where we do have visibility, um, you know, the money is flowing to the sector, um, and there is this ambition to become a global leader. Additionally, China is seeking to reduce its dependency on imported components of technology like semiconductors, and the reason for that is they are looking at artificial intelligence and related sectors um, as a driver of of growth in in the next phase. So that is another area where, although we are lacking some visibility, we see opportunities and some investors can look to position by considering exposure to some of the hardware manufacturers. Um, lastly, in order to ensure that uh, basic welfare services can appropriately cover the needs of um, you know, the BATH and also rapidly aging population, we do think that the government is going to have to consider utilizing the private sector uh, more effectively. And that means that they will uh, likely look at developing domestic insurance services. So that is a theme that is interesting uh, in the long term and that is also well aligned with this new emphasis on, on common prosperity. So those are all areas that we think can benefit uh, in this next stage
0: okay so on the sector front that seems clear um you touched upon looking to outside china to other emerging markets could you elaborate a bit on that
1: absolutely so um, you know we are looking at markets such as india and asean as beneficiaries of some of the themes that ha- we have been discussing so in india for example uh, the low-hanging fruit hasn't been plucked yet. We're looking at a much, much lower per capita GDP, and we, you know, are looking at much, much lower um, average wages across the country. So um, India starts uh, stands to benefit from not not only sort of its own development; um, it was it's at the stage that China was 20 years ago, but also from some of the you know more tactical headwinds that China is experiencing right now, such as. Um, you know, a, a worsening external environment with this rise in geopolitical risks. Uh, India, the country, is managing this bilateral relationship quite well. Um, and um, India is definitely attracting a larger share of foreign direct investment into some of its manufacturing um, as a counterpoint to China, in fact. And so we think that over the long term, given some of the structural things in India, it should entail um, some, some upside for, for the country there. Um, we also like um, some of the smaller economies in ASEAN, um, also related to the theme around supply chain relocations. And within emerging markets outside of Asia, uh, there are countries that are positioned to gain from you know stronger domestic uh, activity in the US, for example, but also from a shifting supply chain. So we look at Latin American countries such as Brazil and Mexico uh, as other alternatives within EMs uh, for investors that still need um, to look. Uh, at gaining a quarter in the sector.
0: Super. Well, all of that seems very clear to me, Carlos. So I'd I just like to finish by thanking you for your time today. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks so much. And it was a pleasure joining you today. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to explore more of our insights, please tune in to our Spotify channel or go to UPP.com.